test, test. All right, well, they're passing out the sheet for Malachi. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Malachi. That's where we'll be tonight. A lot of people are familiar with the first book of the Bible, Genesis, at least the first book of the Old Testament. Not as many people so familiar with the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi. But when you get in our English copies of the Bible, Malachi is the last book of the Hebrew Bible, but also the last book of the Minor Prophets. And that's what we've been studying this quarter. Malachi is just four chapters, and that's what we're going to go through tonight. Um, It's unlike any of the other books of the Minor Prophets. Malachi doesn't really talk about other nations and their sins much. He focuses primarily on Israel and her problem, doesn't call out the sins of other people, but focuses primarily on the failure of God's covenant people. Um, They're handing out your handouts. We'll flip the screen in a minute. But Malachi is also an interesting book because it's what we call a post-exilic book. And a post-exilic book just simply means the things in the book of Malachi happened after Israel was in exile or in slavery for 70 years to Babylon. So all of the former prophets, or at least a good deal of them, before you get to Malachi, are warning Israel. If you don't straighten up, Assyria's coming. Judah, if you don't straighten up, Babylon's coming, and you'll be there for 70 years. Well, once that happens, they come back home, they rebuild the temple, and Malachi's prophesying in that age after the Babylonian exile. So that's important. The people of Israel have been home for a little while, and as a result of that, some things have kind of gotten out of control. The reason why that picture is on the screen is because I think it sort of typifies some of what you see happen in the book of Malachi. Maybe you've moved in a new house before, or maybe even just a new-to-you house, and you know how it is when you move. When you move into a new place, everything's in order. You're very meticulous. You're taking care of everything. New shoes the same way. You don't want to step on anything or anybody to step on you for a little while. And then after some time, you know what happens in new houses. Even the most tidy people, you just kind of settle into your routine. People stop taking their shoes off at your door. Little things happen. You put things out of order. And that's okay. That's normal. But that can eventually lead to sloppiness. And eventually lead to decay and eventually lead to just utter ruin. Every house that's ever been dilapidated or looks anything like that, you've just got to remember, at some point, every house was a brand new house. And at certain points, one step at a time, one thing out of place, one thing not checked on, one thing not put back in its place or seen to eventually leads to sort of what you see on the screen and sometimes worse And I think that's what's happened in the book of Malachi. They've come back home from Babylonian exile. They have the house of God. They got the law. They've got the walls back up. They've got the temple of God's house. But just little by little, things just kind of start getting slack. The excitement wears off after some time. And Israel just starts to do what whatever Israel wants to do. So Malachi is really about the house which God started out, which the house of God, which started out clean. They kept it after exile clean for a little while. But by the time you get to Malachi, it's falling apart. One more interesting thing about the book of Malachi is it's a book of conversations. It's heavily one sided. God's doing most of the talking, but Israel does some talking back as well. And in their conversation with God, they accuse God of things. They try to justify their mistreatment of the house. And they basically claim we're wasting our time to begin with, even trying to please you, God, because of how you run things. God has harsh words, words of rebuke for them. And he's also broken hearted over what would eventually happen to them. But the darkness of the book of Malachi actually helps us to press into the book that comes after this, which is really the New Testament gospel of Matthew and into the light of Jesus Christ. So tonight we'll study the book of Malachi and notice some things about this book. Take the same approach we've taken, intro and background. Look at the overall outline of the book, major themes. 
where it appears in the New Testament and then seeing Jesus throughout this book. And so let's begin with the intro and background. Number one, who wrote the book of Malachi? It's written by Malachi. If you notice, Malachi chapter one and verse one says the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And his name means my messenger. In Hebrew, his name is Malachi, but it's like Malak, kind of the same word for angel or messenger. Some people have hypothesized that maybe this isn't even a person. Malachi is just more about a messenger in general. But every other prophetic book begins by telling you who wrote it. So there's no reason to think that this is just a general messenger. This is a man named Malachi prophesying and preaching to God's people about the ruin that would be theirs if they didn't straighten up their act and repent. He's the only person in the Bible with this name. And it's interesting. His name means my messenger. And throughout the book, we learn nothing about where he's from. We learn nothing about his family lineage or history. He really doesn't even speak in the first person for himself. Everything he says is from the mouthpiece of God. And that's how prophecy is designed to work. Peter says in the New Testament, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. First Peter 411 or Micaiah in first Kings 22 and verse 14. He says, whatever the Lord bids me to speak, that is what I'm going to speak. And that's exactly what Malachi does. Secondly, the time in which he prophesies, you know, some of the other prophets we've looked at in the first verse, they'll tell you who's prophesying and what else do they normally tell us? Who's king and who's in charge at the time? No such thing in Malachi. And so people have tried to wonder, when is Malachi doing his work? But if you read through the book, he gives you some indications. For example, in places like Malachi chapter one, and I believe it's verse eight, he says something about offering things up to your governor. So they're under a governor at the time. And that would say something about them potentially being under Persian rule. Also, as you make your way through the book, he mentions them intermarrying foreign women. Malachi two, 10 through 16 That happened in the days of Ezra and what other historical person in the Old Testament starts with Nia, ends with Maya, Maya. There we go. All right. So Nehemiah, some of that. There's some talking about how they handle the law and gifts to their governor. Malachi chapter one resembles Nehemiah 5, 14 and 18. So all of these identifying markers place the book of Malachi around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. The people have come back. The temples rebuilt. The walls are rebuilt and they're misbehaving. Ezra decries the same thing. Nehemiah does the same thing. So in this 450 to 445 range, I think is a safe date for the book. Who is Malachi talking to? Well, he tells you in the first book, in the first verse, he says it's the oracle of the word of the Lord to who in verse one? To Israel. That's God's people. Old Testament Israel. But as you start reading through the book, Malachi also zeroes in on specific groups under the umbrella of Israel. So he'll talk to the priest. Malachi chapter two and verse one, he's got some words to say to the priest and about them misrepresenting the law, not properly teaching God's people how they ought to live. And then as you make your way further into the book of Malachi, chapter 10, chapter two, verses 10 through 16, he's going to talk primarily to the men or the husbands. They're intermarrying foreign women that are changing the way they view the law of God, divorcing their spouses and that sort of thing. So the audience of this book is Israel in general. Yes. But specifically, he talks to priests, to unfaithful husbands and just to the unfaithful remnant as a whole. And so that's who Malachi is talking to. And then he speaks to future generations at the end about the coming of the Messiah and a prophet that's going to pave the way for the Messiah's coming. We'll talk more about that later. And here is, I think, the last part of the first section. So there you go. Try to write that as fast as you can. Can you see that? All right. Great. So here's the unique feature of Malachi's book. Let me back up so y'all can stop writing and listen to this part. All right. Here's the unique part of Malachi. 
Malachi engages in something called dialectic conversation. Throughout the book of Malachi, there are seven of these, and that's what was just on the screen. God says something to his people. I love you. They respond, how have you loved us? And then God proves his case. God will say, you're offering me terrible worship. They'll say, since when? We've been doing everything you say. And then God offers his case. There are seven of these that run throughout the book, and it's the backbone of Malachi's message. No other prophet engages in this sort of back and forth where God says something. The people basically call God a liar or say, we've got no clue what you're talking about. And then God responds with the proof. So now you can take the notes. There you go. All right. If I turn the remote back on, you can. All right. I think. Oh, the remote just quit. Well, you won't be taking the notes. Bang, there we go. All right, so there we go. There are the seven. The first one is God's love for his elect nation, and we'll break all of these down. God is worthy of honor and sacrifice. God hates covenant unfaithfulness. God's justice is vindicated. God's faithfulness is affirmed. God blesses the faithful giver, and then God remembers the righteous. And so here are the seven arguments that are going to go back and forth, and we'll try to make more sense of these as we make our way through tonight. Why the book of Malachi? And I think this is important. Malachi, like all the prophets, has one major message to the people. What's been the prophet's primary message to God's people? Do what? What do they need to do? Turn and repent. Most of the prophets have that message, whether it's Jonah going to Nineveh or Israel being rebuked or Judah or the surrounding nations. Most of the prophets message to their contemporary audience is, hey, you've got to repent and straighten up. I think that's a large part of Malachi, obviously, because of the things he points out. But there is another layer layer, I think, as he's the last of the prophets. And I think Malachi serves to show us Israel was just never going to get her act together. I mean, this is the final straw for Israel. Then there's 400 years of silence before John the Baptist is crying out in the wilderness. And I think Malachi shows us Israel had her law back. She had her place back, her temple and her walls. And Israel turned right back around and was still the same old Israel she was since God brought her out of Egyptian bondage. She was never going to be the Israel of Exodus 19, 4 and 6, 4 through 6, where Moses says, God wants you to be a peculiar people. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those words sound familiar because they show up later in the New Testament in first Peter two and verse nine. But they were first spoken about Old Testament Israel. She was never going to be that. And Malachi just shows us there was nothing God could have done more to prove himself to be worthy of their love. They continue to fail over and over again. And I think Malachi serves to show us that as we're reading through the Old Testament. God did everything he can. He could with Israel and Israel failed him. Of course, in the grand scheme of things, somebody says, well, it was always God's plan to save all the nations. That's true. But Israel also was supposed to be a light to the nations. Isaiah 49 and verse six. And she never was going to be that. And Malachi helps us to see that. All right. So. Let's go ahead and dive into the first section, which is God's love for his elect. Malachi chapter one, verses one through five. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes will see this and you will say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So this is the first dispute. It starts out. What does God say in verse two after the introduction? I've loved you. He loved Israel. What does Israel say? What's their question? Have you loved us? 
We don't know anything about your love. And God goes on to show his proof of his in verses three through five. This is God's proof to their question. I chose you over Esau. I chose the people of Jacob instead of the descendants of Esau. Not only had he chosen them, but after Israel disobeyed and they went into Babylonian captivity, what did God do for them after 70 years? Brought them back home. When Edom rebelled and didn't get their act together and God chastises them. David taught a lesson on Obadiah early in this series. God plummeted them. And every time they tried to pick themselves back up, he discusses in verses three through five. God struck them back down. He says, I never did that with you, but that was Edom's fate as a result. I've loved you. And the proof is in the pudding. When it says that God loved Jacob, but hated Esau, this hate isn't like God literally hated and disdained them as much as he loved one nation less and chose He chose Jacob's descendants for a reason. Where do we first read about in the history of the Old Testament of God choosing Israel over Edom or Jacob over Esau initially? Where does that show up in the Bible, where God chose the descendants of Jacob instead of the people of Esau? Because it starts with two boys and those two boys form these two nations. So where is that at in the Bible? Before they were born. Somebody said a book. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy, but it's in Genesis, right? Doris and Neil. Yeah. Genesis 25, 19 through 28. When Rebecca's pregnant with the boys, it says that the younger will be served by the elder. And then eventually you remember Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of pottage. Genesis 25. Oh, I hate that this is going to be this way on some of these. Sorry. Screen formatting. But Genesis 25, 29 through 34 shows some of that. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Was that fair to choose one nation over another? Why did God make that selection? Okay. Yeah. But why choose Jacob over Esau? What was the point in choosing one nation above the other? I think it's right, Dwight. Whatever God does is right. And that's the end of it anyway, whatever he chooses to do. But why would God make this choice? Was it arbitrary in choosing the two nations? Why did he choose one over the other? They do have different natures. Um, One thing, though, is the choice was made before they were born. Right. In Romans nine, Paul says before either son had done good or evil, God made his choice. And it goes back to a promise that God made to who first? Abraham, Genesis 12, one through three. And you all families of the earth will be blessed. And so Esau and Edom could be blessed as well if they submit and do what God would have them to do. But God chose Israel and made special selection with them for a reason. Um, What could cause Israel to think this in verse two when they say, how have you loved us? What could cause them to think that they were not loved by God? Where did they get that from? From. okay, maybe from their captivity. What else would make them say God doesn't love us? They came back from captivity. So why would they say that now? God, you don't love us. What are you talking about? Okay, yeah, they come home and nothing extraordinary has happened. There's no Messiah. We got our temple back up. We've got our walls back up. But life is pretty much just gone back to normal. God, you don't love us or care about us. And what could God prove do to show them? I do love you. What would he point to? Yes, he points to things like this with Edom. But what else? He brought them back from captivity, restored their land, restored their law. God did love them. They were just simply mistaken about that. Who does God love today? Everybody. Does everybody in the world know that, though, that God loves them? You think everybody knows that if God says, I've loved you, that nobody in the world would respond back with, wherein have you loved us? If somebody said to you, I don't believe God loves me, what would you point out to prove to them that they're mistaken and that God does love them? Because I think this is really the backbone of the whole book. Israel does not feel loved by God. And because she's not loved by God, we're going to marry who we want. We're not going to offer up worship the way you want us to worship you. 
we're not going to be faithful to the covenant. People that don't know and believe that God loves them cannot respond back to that God in faithfulness. And so if somebody said today God doesn't love me, what types of things would we point to to prove that God does, in fact, love them? What sorts of things would you point out? Roger. OK, so John three sixteen for God. So what the world? He loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We go to the cross. That's the pinnacle of God's love for humanity. That's proof that happened for everybody in the world. Anything else we would point to to say to a person that didn't believe that they were loved by God, that, yes, God does love you. What else would you point out? Okay. Yeah, the hope of Christ. There's hope in what Jesus did. His death on the cross proves that God loves us. Eternal life. Anything else? Creation. I think that's a good place to start. The first page in the Bible. God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything, but especially humanity. He made us in his what? In his own image. God made us in his own image. We've got creation. We've got Jesus's death and the cross. Any other proofs that God loves us, whether people are Christians or not, what would you say to them? Hey, God does love you. What else? Free will. The ability to choose. Yeah, God loves us enough to let us choose whether we want to come to him or not. What about God's kind providence? What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? God sends his reign on the just as well as the who? On the unjust. You don't have to believe in God for God to take care of you. Paul says in Acts 14 and verse 17, God left himself not without witness. He did good. He gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, fills our hearts with food and gladness. People breathe God's air. Take part of God's creation and crops. God shares his love or showers it on everybody in those ways. And so we need to be careful that we don't use incorrect standards to judge whether or not God loves us. Our circumstances are not a good indicator on whether or not we have the love of God. Our personal feelings and how we feel aren't necessarily safe indications on how God feels about us. Sometimes people get up in a worship assembly or maybe at some kind of rally. How do you feel? You probably don't want to ask people that. Because even people that know that God cares about them don't always feel the best. It's not about what we feel. The New Testament constantly points back to what we know. Paul says, I know whom I have believed, 2 Timothy 1.12. And so we should focus on what we know about God and how much God has shown his love toward us. God's love is seen today in those things that we mentioned. What typically happens if somebody doesn't feel that they're loved? How do people respond that don't feel loved by God? What are some of the responses we could expect? All right. You're going to live reckless, possibly, potentially. Right. It doesn't matter. Whatever I do, anything goes. If God doesn't love me, I can do whatever I want. What else? What other type of response? Bitterness. Why? Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't care. He's withdrawn. Yeah. I would also say legalism. If you don't feel like God loves you, you might feel like you've got to earn his love. If I just do enough. If I make enough rules, if I follow enough law, if I do enough things, I can sort of work my way into God's love. And then maybe I can prove to him that I'm worthy of his love. If you don't believe the Heavenly Father loves you intrinsically just because you exist, it'll push you in ways and in directions. Instead of saying our response to God is driven by the fact that he already loves us. We don't earn his love. We just simply embrace it and accept it. You and I need to know we're loved by God and then try to show others the same thing. Israel didn't know this. And this really drives everything else in the book. They don't feel loved by God. So nothing God says really matters to them. I think that's why the Bible drills down on this over and over again. Our response to God is born out of his love for us. And until we know we're loved by God, nothing else is going to fix us. Nothing else will be enough if we don't start here with God loves us. And this is the first dispute that God has with Israel. All right. Here's number two. Here's the second dispute. Chapter one, verses six, really down through chapter two, verse nine. But I'm not going to read all of that. I'll just read chapter one, verses six through eight. A son honors his father and a servant his master. 
If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name by offering polluted food on my altar? But you say, how have we polluted you by saying the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice? Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor and will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. All right. So the second dispute is about their worship. And God says, if you notice in verse six, a son honors his father. That makes sense. And a servant honors his master. If I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master and you're my servants, where is my fear? And the priests say, where have we despised your name and disrespected you? Their response is, God, we've given you exactly what you wanted. And God runs it down from chapter one and verse eight, really into chapter two and verse nine of all the ways their worship has been pitiful. He says, offer what you're offering me to your governor and see if he'll accept it. In chapter two, he'll talk to the priest and talk about the fact that they're not teaching the people the law properly. In chapter one, verse 13 and 14, they viewed serving God as a weariness and kept back the best from offering to him in order to keep it for themselves. So sometimes in the Bible, God rejects worship for different reasons. Sometimes God rejects worship because people are giving God exactly what he wants, but their hearts aren't right. That's in the book of Isaiah, chapter one, 10 through 17. Amos 5, 21 through 24. They're clearing all the acts of worship, offering the best, just like God said, in the right place at the right time. And God looks in their heart and he says, I'm not taking that from you. Do justice. Treat people fairly. Respect your neighbors. Do what you should do and then come back and worship. But then there are other times like this where people offer up worship to God that God won't accept because they're not doing it right. So what was the criteria for sacrifices for Israel? What were they supposed to bring before God in worship according to the law of Moses? What was the standard for their sacrifices to God? All right. Bring something without blemish. That's Deuteronomy 15, 21 and Leviticus 22, 20 through 24. What else? The firstborn or the first fruits. Why were these the standards? Something without blemish and the first fruits. Why did God say that's what he wanted from them in worship? God wants to be first. That's what he was giving them. Somebody else said something. It's a sacrifice. Katrina. Yeah, what they covet it most. OK, God wants the best. Yeah, God's going to test you and see how much do you really love me. Right. The first fruits is to say, hey, here's the first part of your crop. There's more coming. Do you trust there's more coming? Well, give God the first and then just trust God to provide the rest. That's what they were supposed to offer up. So here's the question. We understand that you read the old law. You're like, duh, first, first fruits without blemish. Here's what you've got to be asking yourself when you read a passage like this. OK, what would make somebody think then that they could offer up something that wasn't their first fruits or something that did have blemishes to God? If you read that and you understood it, the Israelites knew the Old Testament law, at least by memory and intellectually better than we do. What would make somebody think they could bring this crippled or maimed animal to God in worship, knowing those passages we just cited? Why would anybody bring that up to God, knowing that? It's the first fruits. It's without blemish. Why would anybody do that then? Indifference, Indifference maybe. OK. OK, so, yeah, there's at least several reasons. Dwight mentions one. Maybe they thought God was blind. In Psalm 94 and verse nine, the psalmist says, he that planted the eye, will he not see? He who gave the ear, will he not hear? Either you think God's blind and he doesn't see what you're offering him and anything can just pass through or what else? Their heart obviously wasn't right. And maybe you think God's desperate. I mean, God just has to take whatever we give him, whatever I offer up to God. God will take it. Look at Psalm 50. Hold your hand in Malachi and go to Psalm 50. 
Psalm 50. And notice what God says about sacrifices starting in verse seven. Psalm 50 and verse seven. He says, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. So who do all the animals belong to? But God's not saying I own a cattle on a thousand heavenly hills. He's talking about their hills. They're all his. Look at verse 12. If I were hungry, what? I wouldn't tell you. This is God saying to them. I am not about to eat this sacrifice you make for me. I hope you're not make, thinking you're making me dinner because God doesn't dine in the temple. Now, pagan priests and pagan gods were believed to come down and their sacrifices were dinner for their gods. They ate them. God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Look at verse 13. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the most high. Call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and cast my words behind you. God saying, I'm not desperate for your sacrifices. If God wasn't eating the stuff, what was the purpose in having Israel offer it up? What was he doing? He was trying to do something internally to Israel to change them, to teach them sacrifice, offering, giving and doing the things that God would have them to do. And so when we read a passage like this, I know it's in the Old Testament, but it just says to us that. Worship is dangerous at times. I think we should be aware and be warned that we don't fall into the same trap. How might we be tempted to offer God that which is crippled, lame and blind today? I know we don't bring in these literal sacrifices like they did, but how might somebody be tempted to do this with God today? What might be some examples of just giving God whatever in worship and thinking God has to accept it? Okay, more on our giving in a minute. Yeah, Malachi chapter three, he's going to talk about giving. But I think giving is a good, good example of that. Just whatever I just throw in the plate. By the way, the Bible talks about preparing to do that. Right. Not just. Oh, well, there it goes. There's the plate. I guess it's time. Paul says lay by in store. Right. Prepare ahead of time. Neil, did you have a hand? Yeah, it can be in vain if we just go through the motions. We think, well, we didn't have an instrument. We cleared all the bases. Took the Lord's Supper first day of the week, just like Acts 20 and verse 7 says. Hey, gave on the first day of the week, just like we should. But if our minds aren't engaged, it really doesn't do us any good. I have a few down here. Just going through the motions in worship. Neil mentioned that. Not participating. How many songs? Let me think about this. How many songs can you sit out in a worship service and be pleasing to God? Just start singing. And it's like, well, why'd he pick that one? Nobody knows that one. Hey, one time, all of them were the first time you ever sung them. So just catch up by the second stanza. You can do it. I promise you. Now, if there's one stanza, sorry, too bad. But we sometimes start singing a song and people are like, well, I don't know that one. So I guess that one ain't for me. But like at one time, you didn't know any of the songs, right? Just willfully sitting out, just not participating. Hey, we're going through the sermon. Nothing's wrong with me physically. I'm just not turning to the passages. I'm just here camping out. We don't get like attendance points with God in worship just for showing up. We don't just get check marks, maybe not participating, offering up whatever to God. I think this is sometimes unauthorized worship. People do that rushing through. I think we're very time conscious. And I know there's a fine line between a thought out, well-planned scriptural worship service and a hostage situation. I get it. I get it. It doesn't have to be eternal. The prayers need an amen. I understand that. But I mean, if we're taking the bread and we're already on the cut and we're just like, we've got to. I know it's that we're it's the way we're programmed in our society. But when we come before worship, when we come before God to worship, 
we might want to think through things a little bit more and not be so time conscious to the point where we don't focus on what we're actually here to do. We could have our body here, but our mind elsewhere and then just check in the box. What does it mean when Jesus says in John four and verse 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him. How in spirit and in what? We know that verse. Now tell me, what does that mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? What do you think that means? Well, let's do the easier one first, I guess. When it says worship God according to the truth, what does that mean? All right, do what's in the Bible. Good. We've got truth. We don't do anything that's not in the Bible. Now, what does it mean to worship God in spirit? Jesus says God is a spirit first. So that kind of lets you know something. God is a spirit and people that want to connect with God have to connect with him. How? In spirit. It involves our heart, Andy, for sure. Jesus is saying God's a spiritual being. And if you want to connect with God in worship, the only way you're going to do it is through your spirit. We do these fleshly acts, but it's a spiritual endeavor to worship God and to do it in spirit and in truth. Our mind and spirit need to be engaged with God. And so we've got to be fully invested or this same thing comes to us as it does in Malachi. And in their day, they were thinking, what have we done wrong? We checked all the boxes. We did everything. And we might be so worried about unauthorized worship that we forget about raggedy worship. And that's what they were offering to God, the lame, the blind, the crippled. And God says, I don't have to accept that. I don't just accept whatever people give me. God's never done that. David says in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 24, I will not offer up worship to God or sacrifices to God, which costs me nothing. Everybody who's ever offered up biblical worship to God, it costs them. Cost energy and time and focus and effort. And I'm not just talking about the people that are leading the worship. I mean, to pay attention is difficult, but it's the price that we pay to be engaged fully and invested. We're doing it for God and we need to make sure that we pay our dues in worship. All right. We've got to pick up speed to go through these others. This will be the last one we take a little time on. This third dispute is about covenant faithfulness. Go to Malachi 2 and we'll read 10 through 16. Have not we all one father? Has not one God created us? Then why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. This second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of his youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, the different translations in 16 kind of deal with this differently. Most translations go with God hates divorce. You probably have something like that in that trend in that verse. And I think that captures it. That's right. That's the dilemma in chapter two, 10 through 16. It's about their covenant vows and disputes over marriage. So in chapter two, 10 through 16, these folks have come back. They've divorced the wife of their youth. They've married foreign women. And God had already warned Israel not to marry who? Don't marry foreign wives. Deuteronomy seven, one through six. Ezra decries this issue. Nehemiah does the very same thing. They had not only done this, but divorced their spouses as a result. And God says, I hate divorce. I hate the fact that you're not being faithful to the covenant you originally entered into. 
Why does God oppose divorce so strongly? Malachi 2.16 is one of the most straightforward verses on this. But when you read through the New Testament, there's Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, and a host of other passages where God basically tells couples as best you can, stick it out, and God despises divorce. There is an exception clause in Matthew 19. But why does God not want this to be the case? Okay, so God's the one that joins spouses together. Jesus says that in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10. Let not men separate. What else? It's going to affect society. Okay. Verse 15 says, did he not make them one with the portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Yeah, I think it has something to do with that. And also that marriage is a covenant. And we enter a covenant with God. And so when we enter a covenant with God, God's saying, hey, marriage is the closest thing that resembles your relationship to me. And I want you to, to the best of your ability, to be able to stick that out. And so he tells them here, I want you to hold fast to the covenant that we that you were placed under and don't divorce the wife of your youth. Um, As far as we're concerned, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus doesn't loosen the teaching of divorce in the New Testament. But instead, he says there's one lawful cause for which one can put away their spouse. And the application for us is really to hold up the biblical view of marriage that we find in the New Testament. But as much as we are concerned about unscriptural marriage and we need to be Matthew 19, 1 through 12, if you divorce your wife or your spouse for any cause except for fornication, Jesus says you commit adultery. Matthew 19 and verse nine. We need to be concerned about unscriptural marriage, but we also need to be concerned with low quality marriage because that's also unscriptural where you've got Ephesians 5, 22 through 32 and Colossians 3, 18 through 19. And God's saying, here's how I want spouses to interact where that's not taking place. It's also covenant unfaithfulness to the degree of not fulfilling the roles that God desires for us. And the book of Malachi just shows God's strong opposition to it, as well as the rest of the New Testament books. All right. Let's try to pick up a little speed. God's justice vindicated. In Malachi 2, 17 through chapter 3 and verse 5, Israel challenges God's justice. You see that in verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? And they basically challenge God's justice and say God's not making sure that things are taken care of in the right way. And we've talked about this in previous lessons. Um, You think about Job. You think about some of the prophets. You think about Asaph in Psalm 73. The more you read the Bible, I think we should start asking a different question when difficult things come up. Instead of saying, where is God? A lot of people ask that question and they all get the same answer. God is still where he's always been on the throne. God is involved in the world. The next time tragedy strikes, instead of saying, where is God? We should probably ask something like this. How will God show his justice and glory through this circumstance? Everybody who ever poses this question to God, where is God, has been wrong about their circumstances. Gary taught a few weeks ago on what prophet that had this same dilemma. Starts with Habakkuk. Yeah, there we go. So Habakkuk has this same dilemma. God, where are you? You sleep on the job. God shows up and he says, I'm not. I'm going to deal with Judah. And then later I'm going to deal with Babylon. The next time in our lives things don't go the way we want. We should just get in line behind all these people who had the same frustration and then remind ourselves God will show up and he will vindicate himself. God promises to send a messenger in Malachi 3, 1 through 5, who is John the Baptist, who will eventually pave the way for the Lord. And God's people are taught to trust him. I just want to get through this so we can hit the. Final highlights towards the end here. They challenge God with being unfaithful in Malachi chapter three and verse six. Notice what God says in Malachi three, six. For the Lord does not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. 
while God hasn't changed, Israel had changed over and over again. They were unfaithful, but God was continuously faithful toward them. And when God says in Malachi three and verse six, I do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. That's a blessing. The consistent God that we can depend on is a blessing because it says to us as many times as we come back, God will receive us back. Whatever God says about himself in one passage can be depended on to be true about him throughout the rest of his um, the rest of our journey with him. Gary mentioned offering and giving earlier, and we'll just speed through this. They rob God in tithes and in offering, and God promises to bless them if they give faithfully. Malachi 3 and verse 8, he says, how will a man rob God? Yes, you've robbed me. And they say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and in your contribution? God tells them if they give properly that he'll pour out a blessing so that they won't receive. They won't have room enough to receive it in Malachi three, nine through ten. Is that still true today? Does God still operate that way? Sometimes the health and wealth gospel says if you give materially, God will bless you with abundance. Is that true still today? Some of y'all looking like we don't trust you. Where's this going? Okay. Okay, yeah, so there is a blessing. For sure. I'm asking, that's a good point. I think that's the thrust of Acts 20 and verse 35. But I'm asking specifically this promise, and there's one in Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 along the same lines, that God says, I will bless you materially if you give in an abundant fashion. Is that still true? And why is the answer yes? It is true. Neil? Yeah, I think that's right. In Second Corinthians nine, six and through eight is your passage. We normally quote this about giving and stop in verse seven. God loves a cheerful giver. But in verse eight, Paul says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that you always have an all sufficiency and all things may abound in every good work. And so God wants his resources in the hands of the people that are going to deal with it most responsibly. And there is a sense in which God blesses those that give prosperously to his cause. Motivation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You can't hustle God like I need 100. I'll give him 50. See what I get back. Right. But if you're giving it from this spirit of love, the cheerful giver aspect, then God, God will bless your efforts. There are some principles on giving as you've prospered. God can't God and request more of us than we can give. It's according to what a man has, not what he doesn't have. Second Corinthians eight and verse twelve. It proves our love. Second Corinthians eight twenty four. And God loves a cheerful giver. Nine, six and seven. I think it's interesting. You read the Old Testament. There are percentages. You get to the New Testament and there is no percentage that's boiled down to say, here's where you start your giving. It's more of the principle from love. OK, God's given you the very best. They started with the tenth. See how much you love God. And it proves your love. Last little slide here on the principles of Malachi. Some believed it was vain to serve the Lord. And God says, I've got a book of remembrance for those that serve me. I will not forget them. The wicked will perish, but the righteous will shine. Okay. the major themes discussed in the book of Malachi in two minutes. Um, One is God's true character. They say a lot of things about God. And God says, you've said this about me, but this is who I really am. And God is always who he claims to be and not who we make him out to be. Second is the holiness of God. When we approach God, we're approaching a holy God and we can't bring him whatever we want and just think, well, God will just accept it just because he's got no other option. There's the righteousness of God. God says, don't divorce. Don't break my laws. Don't treat them as something trivial. And he holds us accountable for doing that. There's the immutability of God, which is the fact that God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And his standards of righteousness are the same, though we're under a different covenant. 
There's God's ready recollection. People always pray for that for preachers, so I figured it'd be good to put it up there for God. But it's God's book of remembrance in Malachi 3.16. Neil actually has a rec collection, a ready recollection in his office, but I'll let him show you all that. But Malachi 3.16, God has a ready recollection of what we do for him. And then there's the arrival of God. Malachi talks about God coming soon. All right. Here are the New Testament passages that quote the book of Malachi and most of them. And this is where we'll end tonight. Most of the passages in the New Testament that allude to the book of Malachi talk about the coming of John the Baptist. And Malachi three and verse one, God says, behold, I send my messenger before your face. He'll prepare the way for the Lord. And then in Malachi four and verse five, it says that there's going to be a prophet coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he is going to bring the fathers back to the children, children back to the fathers and get people ready for the coming of Jesus. When you get done with the book of Malachi, I know in our Bible it's just one page, but these people had to wait 400 years. Think about our world and what was going on 400 years ago. And Jesus finally arrives and he takes on the curses that they deserve in the book of Malachi and that we deserve. And he fulfills all of the promises of the Old Testament. And he is finally the promised Messiah, which has arrived. So I hope we've enjoyed our study this quarter on the Minor Prophets. Hope you benefited tonight from Malachi. Thanks for a good Bible class.